All right, uh, I'd invite you to take out your Bibles, turn to First Thessalonians. I uh, went to the doctors uh, just last week, and um, it's interesting how you, 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 they kind of stage you. You know, you, you go and you check in, you go sit down, and you kind of do a, a semi-check in, and then uh, a nurse will come out, and then she took me to this little room. And uh, she took all my vital signs. She checked my blood pressure, checked my pulse, did the <gasps> did my rest respiratory, took my temperature. Although they, they do temperature now, like she did this, rolled this thing across my forehead. Remember the good old days? Yeah. Uh, some technology is really an improvement, if you know what I mean. Um, but, oh, really? <laughs> Not my doctor. Anyway, uh, why, they, they take your vital signs because they, they want to know if, if you're normal. You know, kind of you're normal, you're healthy, because there is a range depending upon, obviously, your, I guess your gender and age. There's, there's a certain norm. They want to they figure out, are you basically normal and healthy? Um, well, as I looked at today's, study today's passage, this, I think, Chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, are, are, is, is Paul reassuring the, the church in Thessalonica that they were normal, that they were healthy, that they were doing good. Um, and and, and he, he will do that with them uh, through two vital signs that he, that he has taken of, the, of their, them in the, as a church uh, to, to confirm to them that you are doing good, you are doing fine. All the vital signs are normal. Uh, and the first one, I'll just tell you, the first vital sign was their relationship to the Word. Their relationship to the Word. And the second vital sign was their relationship to the world. Their relationship to the Word and their relationship to the world. Uh, so let's, uh, let's read chapter 2, just not very many verses, 13 through 16. And then we'll, we'll unpack them a little bit. Verse 13 of chapter 2. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God or the message of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are always completing the number of their sins, and wrath has overtaken them at last. The first thing he tells them is that they have a healthy relationship to the Word. Again, if you look at verse 13, he begins by saying, this is why we constantly thank God. Now, this is kind of a continuation of chapter 1. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 2, he says, we always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. And then we, he went through the fact that they were chosen, that they were elect. Now he's, he's, he's really continuing that thought. So I guess you could say, this is also why I am thanking God, constantly thanking God. And he says, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a 
if you will, word of men, but as it truly is the word of God. Now, this is similar to what we looked at in terms of the gospel of God. What kind of construction, grammatical construction is this? Word of God. Thank you. Danny's the only one that remembers. Uh, It's a genitive, and genitive describes some kind of relationship between two things. Um, So, what is it? When we say the word of God, is it the word about God? Is it the message about God? Or is it is it the message that God gave to us? Yeah, I, I think if you remember, we talked about the gospel of God. Probably both. It is. It is. It is. It, the, the, in other words, I think that what he's getting at is the origination of what we spoke to you and what we preached to you. The origination was God Himself. This was what God gave us. The, the, this message, as Paul will tell Timothy, is God breathed. It's breathed out by God. And, and, and when they heard this, he says, they recognized it as that. In other words, this just wasn't... They recognized that Paul was not just another philosopher or, or just another wise teacher, but they recognized that there was something different about what he taught. In fact, not just different, but they recognized that it was, in fact, the, from God himself. So... Their relationship to the Word. Now, here are the options on on these two vital signs. One is to recognize or repudiate. Okay? Recognize or repudiate. So, what do I mean by recognize? Recognize is either to acknowledge as existing or true. When you recognize something, um, you recognize, you acknowledge that it is existing and or that it is true. Anybody know, what what does repudiate mean? To reject. Yeah, it means to reject, really, and more specifically, to reject as having no authority or binding force. So, when someone hears the Word of God, they have two choices. They can either recognize it as the Word of God, or they can repudiate it. They can, they can reject it as having no authority or binding force. And Paul said to them, you recognized this message as coming from God himself. Not from man. So, really he's talking about origin, which means really authority. They recognized the authority of what Paul was preaching. That they were under the authority of what they heard. So, what are the two options? The word of men and the word of God. What do we mean by the word of men? What kind of genitive is that, do you think? The word of men. The message of men. Okay, yeah, maybe a genitive of source. In other words... The message that men give, that man gives. We're going to, we're going to look at some. We're going to look at a few passages here. First uh, Corinthians chapter two. Get an idea of the distinction between Paul making the distinction between the word of God and the word of men. First uh, Corinthians chapter two. Verses four and five. He says, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit so that your faith might not be based on man's wisdom, but on God's power. So, the word of men is based on what? Man's wisdom. In fact, we see this in Colossians 2.8. Turn over to Colossians 2.8. 
We, and he's going to specify what he means by man's wisdom. Colossians 2.8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. So the word of men is based on man's wisdom and on human tradition. One more, 2 Timothy 4. Just past 1 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. This is the chapter where he tells Timothy to proclaim the word, proclaim the message. Verse 3, For the time will come and they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. And they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, be serious about everything and do a hardship to the work of evangelists. So he says the word of man is based on man's wisdom it's based on human tradition and it is based on myths. And he's saying that, in fact, um, you didn't recognize it. You, you rejected, you repudiated the word of men and you recognized that what I preached to you, Paul says, was the very words of God. And, they, and, and, and that means that they recognize and they acknowledge the authority of God's word. Now, here's, here's what dawned on me this week when I was studying. I used to say this. I used to say the Bible is our ultimate authority, our ultimate and final authority. And that's not quite accurate. The Bible is the ultimate and final. It's not just ours. It's not, this, is, this is not just our truth. This is not just our authority. This makes claim of authority of God's entire creation. This is not just our authority, and the Mormons have their authority, and the, the Buddhists have well, whatever they have. I don't know, the Ramalama Ding Dong or something, I don't know. This is not just our authority. This is the authority. This is the ultimate and final authority over all creation. And that's what they recognize. And and it's sad to me how so many Christians are repudiating the Bible. Oh, they're not completely rejecting it out of hand, but what do they do? They, they, They reject the authority, the ultimate and final authority of the Bible. Here's what they do. They downplay or they outright reject the miraculous. You know, in a scientific age, I just can't buy the that miracle stuff. I, I like the Gospels. I like reading about Jesus. He was kind of, you know, kind of like the Swami that was roaming the countryside and making healing people and feeding people. I like those stories. But this cross, you know, parting the Red Sea, it, that really didn't happen. It was the Sea of Reeds. It's only about three feet deep. And it was the time of year where oftentimes, you know, it... it, it it doesn't flood, and maybe it was a drought and able to cross. Of course, there was one problem with that. What's the problem with that? The entire Egyptian army drowned in three feet of water. Now, that's a miracle. We, we, so, many Christians repeat the Bible. I eat Charles, not Charles, Andy Stanley is one that does this. We no longer have to be embarrassed by or have to defend stories like Jonah It wasn't a whale. It was a great fish. We don't have to worry about defending that anymore. That was just hyperbole and myth and story. We don't have to be embarrassed about a man-eating fish anymore. 
We don't have to defend and be embarrassed about axes that float. We're going to see that in 1 Kings, by the way, Wednesday night. We don't have to try to explain, um, you know, the sun standing still. Or we try to explain it away. You know, it really didn't stand still. It was just their perception and the angle that they were at. And When we accept and recognize that this is, in fact, the Word of God, we, we no longer have the right to reinterpret it to make it make sense to us. Because then we are simply accepting the Word of men. At that point, now the Word of men is, is our authority. For instance, evolution. We repudiate the Genesis account. We repudiate the Word of God for the Word of men. We try to make the, the Word of God credible to the Word of men. And, and, and we come up with this theistic evolution, or, we, or, or we, we try to make the Bible credible to, the, to our science. Listen, I, I, had a, I had a friend, he had an apologetics ministry. Uh, he was back in Illinois. Don Vino was his name. And we were talking about how we were lamenting the fact that uh, how many Christian books were, were, the, uh, were being endorsed, that, well, bad Christian books were being endorsed by normal Normally, solid teachers. And he came up with a theory, and he said this. He said, in the Christian, in, in Christian publishing, when it comes to theologians and authors, um, we, we, we have this pact with the world. We're saying, we won't call you heretics if you won't call us stupid. In other words, we want to make the Bible credible to the world. We want to make it credible to scientists and to a scientific culture. And so what we do is we repudiate the Genesis account to make it, yeah, let's just give in a little bit on human origins and evolution. He says, you didn't do that. You accepted this. You recognized, you received, you accepted this as the very words of God and as such had authority. It is not just, guys, it is not just our authority. It is the authority over all mankind. And he said, that's why we constantly thank God for you. Because you recognize that. Your relationship to the Word is, you recognize this as the very words that were breathed out by God. And he said, at the very end of verse 13, which also works effectively in you believers. Hey, this, is not just, this is not just an intellectual book, although it is incredibly deep and diverse and, and, and in terms of literature alone. It, it, it's not just intellectual. He said that it, it is effectively working in you. Why do I harp? Why do we always harp? Why does the pastor always harp on read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible? It's not rules. It's not legalism. It's not regulation. Because when you read this, it effectively works in you. You may not get anything out of what, quote unquote, anything out of what you read. I talked to my sister, my oldest sister. She lives in Montana. And her, my, her daughter, my niece, it's all relative, um, 
she got her reading the, reading the Bible every day. She had her reading plan, and she reads the Bible every day. And she goes, you know, some days it's just kind of hard. It's kind of bland, kind of boring. But after I do it, I, I, you know, I'm just so glad I did. And I encouraged her. I said, Sharon, listen, any time you spend reading God's Word, I don't care if you get nothing, quote-unquote nothing, if you get nothing out of it, it has an animating effect on us. In Hebrews 4.12 says, the Bible is what? The Word of God is living and active. It has an animating quality to it. It has a life-giving quality to it. And even though we're not squeezing great truths out of it at any given time, just the fact that we've read it and we've spent some time in it has an animating impact. It will effectively work in your life. Now, it's not going to be, you know, you're sitting down and go, get, get your jolt. But you know, you've got to know that Paul says, in fact, that it works effectively in you. It's not just an intellectual thing, but there is a spiritual dynamic that the Spirit uses in our lives as we spend time in the Word that is effective at work in you. In fact, when they first got converted, what did they do? When they first heard this message of God, when they first heard the Word of God, what was the first thing they did? They turned from their idols. They rejected their, their life. They rejected their past life. What explains that? The effectiveness of the Word of God. Your relationship to the Word. Paul says you're doing good. I just took your vital sign in terms of your relationship to the Word. And in fact, you are doing really well because you recognize, you receive our message that you heard from us. And you welcome it not as a word of men, not based on human tradition, not myths. Recognize that I wasn't trying to just tell you what you wanted to hear. But you recognize it as the word of God, which also works effectively in you believers. Number two, their relationship to the world. Their relationship to the world. Okay, so the relationship to the world was recognize or repudiate. Their relationship to the world is either hold or fold. Hold or fold. What do I mean by hold? To hold means to remain attached, faithful or steadfast. If you hold to something, I hold to a teaching, it means that you stay attached to it. You remain faithful. You remain steadfast to it. So you can either hold or fold. What does fold mean? Uh, well, let's start there. You've got to know when to fold. Okay, so words have semantic ranges. How many of you thought of like folding up something? Fold it up, a map. You fold up a map? What, what does that mean? What's a map? Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, you don't fold up apps. You fold up maps. Good point. In poker... You got to know when to fold. What what is fold in poker? You give in. Yeah, so fold is to give in or give up one's position or commitment. You fold. So you hold or fold. When it comes to relation when it comes to our relationship with the world, we have to decide are we going to hold or are we going to fold? Look at verse 14. He says, we also thank God for you, for you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. As a result, they are always completing the number of their sins. And wrath has overtaken them at last. What does he say to them? He says, you've become imitators. Now, why would, why would this be encouraging for them? This will be this will, audience participation time. Why would he say, you know what, guys? You're experiencing the same thing the church experiences back in Judea, in Jerusalem. Why would that be encouraging? To know that they are being persecuted the same way the church is in, Jer- in Jerusalem. You're not alone in this. You're, you're in good company. There's nothing right out. There's Because you're being persecuted doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. In fact, quite the opposite. And Paul loves this word imitate. Throughout his letters, he talks about uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And In fact, he uses it in, in chapter 1 when he says... You, you've imitated us. And, and so he's saying to them, he's encouraging them, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, your relationship to the world, even though the world hates you and the world is persecuting you and you are suffering persecution, there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, look over at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul, on the other hand, Paul was concerned about them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. So Paul is in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution. And as you know, it happened. So for this reason, I can no longer stand it. I also send to find out about your faith fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. He says this is a good sign. Persecution is a good sign. Let me tell you when you ought to get nervous. Let me tell you when we ought to get nervous as a church, when the world loves us. We get nervous when the world loves what we're teaching. The world loves false teachers. The world loves false churches. You know, no, we don't get nervous when the world hates us and hates our message. That's not when we are to be nervous. In fact, let's listen to Jesus. Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5. Sorry, Susie. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Now, notice that's a very important clause. Because of me, not because of you. Not because you're tactless and boorish and offensive. Uh, don't claim you're being persecuted from Christ because you're just being weird. He says, because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is Jesus saying? You're in good company. When you're being persecuted, you're in company because that's how they treated the prophets. Now look at them at 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 
2 Timothy 3.12, I know we're bouncing all over the place here, but this is important. 2 Timothy 3.12, a, a verse that haunts me, quite frankly. Uh, someone read verse 12. 2 Timothy 3.12, out loud. What do we do with that? How many of you have been persecuted lately? I mean really persecuted. I struggle with that. Uh, I will say this though. Persecution because of Christ or because of His Word is not something we are to avoid. It is something that we welcome. Not in a sadomasochistic way. But Jesus, in fact, says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for me. We are to expect persecution. Now, living in a constitutional republic, in a nation that demonstrably was founded on biblical principles that we've now lost and are continuing to lose every day, we have a hard time with this. It's unfair. It's really not separation of church and state. It's separation of Christianity and state. In fact, it's just separation of Christianity, period. We struggle with this. But we ought not to be surprised. We ought not. Why, why do Muslims not face it? Or Buddhists? Or why don't they face the same kind of things that Christians face? When I was driving a... I don't know how many of you know this or not. I was driving a bus... For RTD, and, and early on I drove what's called an AT. It's one of those coaches that you drive out to the airport. And in between our, uh, your run to the airport, there's a commercial vehicle holding area where, because uh, you, you, you take a, a group out, and then you have like a 30-minute layover, and then you bring a group back. So they don't want you parking the bus like at the airport. So they have a commercial, you've, you've probably seen that as you enter DIA, commercial vehicle holding area. That's where taxis go to park on long layovers, any commercial vehicles goes and parks over there. Do you know the city of Denver paid, built and paid for a Muslim prayer room for the Muslim taxi cab drivers? They have a room to pray in. The city and county of Denver paid for it. What happened to separation of church and state? Do you think that they would ever build a prayer room for Christians? We shouldn't be surprised by that. Now, that's really not persecution per se, but we shouldn't be surprised. In fact, Paul goes on to talk about what happened to the church in Judea. Just as they did from the Jews. Now, we know that, it, that when he says the Jews, it wasn't the average rank and file Jew, although we do know that his crucifixion, there was a large group of Jews that were saying crucified but this was really being pushed by the Jewish leaders, by the Pharisees in particular. In fact, we're going to look at Matthew 23, and he has some very strong words for them. What does he say? They killed both the Lord Jesus. This is the only place where Paul clearly lays the blame of Jesus' death on the Jews. This is not anti-Semitic. This is just historical fact. Now, what you do with that may be <laughs> anti-Semitic, um, but that in and of itself is not any. That's just plain fact. The Jews used Rome to kill Jesus. 
to have Jesus crucified. And he says, this is nothing new because they also killed the prophets and persecuted us. Um, Keep your marker here. Turn to Matthew 23. Let's look at what Jesus has to say. Now, this Matthew 23 is prior to, obviously, Paul's ministry and the founding of the church of Thessalonica. Matthew 23, beginning verse 29. These are his, his famous woes. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Look with me at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding of the prophets' blood. You therefore testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's sins. Look with me at verse 33. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is Jesus. This is why I am sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and hound from town to town. Now, we read that. In fact, this would have really resonated with the church in Thessalonica because if you remember in Acts 17... Paul got run out of Thessalonica, and where did he go? Remember? To Berea. And he was having an effective ministry in Berea. And Acts 17, 13 said, when the Jews in Thessalonica heard that, the, that Paul was being an effective Berea, what did they do? They hounded him down to Berea, and he had to leave Berea and go to Athens. Look at 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. By the way, in your Bible, you might have a heading that says Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem. Strike that out. This is not a, he's not lamenting. That doesn't even fit the context. He's pronouncing judgment. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. She who kills the prophets and stones those who sent her. How often I wanted, now listen to the distinction, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. He's not saying, I wanted to gather you, I wanted to gather your children, but you wouldn't let me. He's talking about the fact that they hindered the gospel proclamation. And, and, and we're going to see this in First Thessalonians chapter. Well, actually, we see it in chapter two, verse sixteen. He says, "Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that may be saved." That's what they were doing. They were hindering Paul. They were hindering Jesus from speaking to Jews, and they were hindering Paul from speaking to Gentiles. They were hindering the proclamation of the gospel. Listen, there is there is one thing to reject the gospel. There is another thing to to prohibit others from hearing the gospel. Um, who was it, this famous atheist who died a year ago or so? Uh, Richard Dawkins. I often wonder what, would it, what it was like for this guy, who not only was he an avid atheist, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking. Not only, but how many people did, did he hinder from hearing the gospel? through what he did and what he said. Jesus takes it very seriously because what does he say to them who are hindering the gospel? He says, you are heaping up the sins of your fathers. 
you're piling up your sins. And in fact, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, you've reached the limit. And in a few short years, their entire city and temple would be absolutely, completely obliterated and millions of them dead. Millions of them dead. That's Jesus. Hindering and heaping. In verse 16, he says, As a result, they always are, they are completing the number of their sins, and wrath has overtaken them at last. Now, the NIV rightly brings out the source of this wrath. This is, this is God's wrath. They have now exhausted God's patience. They have now exhausted God's graciousness. And he says now they have completed and they've filled up to the uttermost. And finally, at last, they have exhausted their sins. And in fact, they did experience God's wrath. What do you think would have been the result of this? If, if you had heard this, he said, you know what, guys? You, when you heard God's Word, because we know in chapter 1 what God effectively did in them, but He said, you recognize this was the Word of God and not just the Word of men. And you accepted the authority of this. You turned from idols and you turned to the living God. And, and this, this, your faith is being wrung out and reverberating all over the region. And, and God's Word is effectively working in you. I am pleased with your relationship to the world, word. And, and I know that you're experiencing intense persecution, but understand that you're in good company and you are blessed. Jesus says you are blessed if you're persecuted for me. And I know that this is, this is a tension because I'm thinking, well, what does that have to do with my neighbor? You know, I'm trying to reach my neighbor. But listen, understand that the gospel is offensive. The Christian message, why? Because the Christian message says you have to abstain from sexual immorality. We're going to look at that in First Thessalonians. The Christian message says that homosexuality is an abomination. It's a sin. It's not a lifestyle choice. They hate that. The, the, the Word of God says you can't get to heaven on your own. You can't be good enough. You can't be sincere enough. The Bible says that you are basically evil, not basically good. They hate that. They hate everything about that. They hate our message. And he says... That's okay. That's normal. Your vital signs are normal because that's exactly what happened and has happened to the people of God from the very beginning, all going all the way back to Moses and Abraham. This would have been encouraging. It would have been reinforcing. They would have been comforted. They would have been empowered. You're right where you need to be. Just like when you go into the doctor's office and they take all your vital signs and they say, yeah, you're doing good. Your blood pressure's great. Your pulse is great. Your respiration's great. Your temperature's great. You're doing great. You're healthy. You're good. You're fine. Well, what does it mean for us? I think two questions. What or who is the ultimate authority in, in your life on all matters? Is the, does God's word is God's word and authority in the in the area of politics? Yes. Is God's word and authority 
over science in the realm of science? Yes. What about economics? Yes. In other words, is there a sphere in which God's Word is not an authority over? And we have to decide in every given sphere or every given area, are we going to listen to the Word of men or are we going to listen to the Word of God? Are we going to, are we going to recognize the Word of God and its, and its authority in these areas or are we going to repudiate the Word of God? Number two, what is our orientation to this world? And, and I understand the tension. I, we, we should be reaching out to our neighbors. and we, Our intention is not to be intentionally abrasive. But at some point, they've got to hear the message. Right? Now, we can help that by being servants, by being loving and kind and, and all those things. But, but our, is our goal peaceful coexistence with our culture? I mean, is that really our ultimate goal? It's just, to, can't we all just get along? Is it peaceful coexistence or is it prophetic presence? The church in Thessalonica had a, what I call a prophetic presence. They exuded the truth of God. They, 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 they lived and breathed the, the Word of God. They had a prophetic presence in their culture. Did they change their culture? Did they change Thessalonica? Probably not. Not in any, probably in their lifetime as a church, probably not in any expansive, significant way. But do you not think that they had an impact? Because of their relationship to the Word of God and their prophetic presence that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and, and they were being persecuted and they were, they were experiencing a great deal of suffering and hardship. Will we fold or will we hold? Will we recognize or will we repudiate? That's what lays before us. And I think that if he took our vital signs, we'd be doing pretty good. No, we're not being persecuted. Um, But I, I think that we're doing pretty good and I think he'd say to us, do it even more. Keep it up. Do it even more. Let's pray. Father, our goal is to please you not men. Our goal is to obey you, not men. And Father, we, um, we, want to, we want to spend time getting to know you and spending time with you through your word. We can't do that just in our own minds, our own heads. Uh, we are in constant danger of making you into our image, but we are always confined. We are always being guided by your word, and, and that effectively works in us. So I pray that we would once again renew our our, uh, our commitment to spend time in Your Word. And not just spend time in Your Word, but let Your Word spend time in us. And, and, and to allow Your Word to inform us and to guide us and to direct us in all areas of life. Politics, economics, morality, ethics, all these things You speak to. And Father, we don't want to just get along with our culture. Our goal is not peaceful peaceful coexistence. We are not to be rabble rousers. We are not to be rebels. Uh, But, Father, at the same time, we are to have a prophetic presence in our culture and be speaking truth and to be speaking your word and to be living your word. 
And as we do, we will know that we are healthy and that our vital signs are normal. And we thank You and we pray in the name of our Lord who suffered, who suffered greatly, who was repudiated by the world and continues to be repudiated by this world. And it's in His name whom we receive and accept and recognize as our Lord and Savior. And we pray in His name. Amen. Thank you.